The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Returning to God's Word tonight, tonight we're continuing in our series in the book of Mark, which we've been going through. It's been a couple of weeks now. We had our volunteer appreciation service last Sunday, so it's been two weeks since Dr. Light took us through Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We were, we were one Sunday off for Palm Sunday and getting the text of the uh, entry into Jerusalem. But Jesus entered Jerusalem and cleansed the temple in Dr. Light's sermon two weeks ago, and tonight we come to the end of, of Mark 11. You know, Jesus, Jesus entered Jerusalem to crowds proclaiming Him as the Messiah, and the day after He entered Jerusalem he re- uh, on the donkey, He returned again and overturned the tables in the temple, drove out money changers and the sellers and the merchants, and charged the Jews of making God's house of prayer into a den of robbers. And in our passage tonight, the Jewish leaders now are going to follow up with Jesus on these, these confrontational actions. They're going to follow up with him with a series of questions that are meant to, to challenge his authority and seek to undermine his influence in his ministry. That's the aim of, of the Jewish leaders in our passage tonight. I just want to note, we're starting in chapter 11, Mark chapter 11, verse 27. We're going to skip over the parable of the tenants, which was addressed in our Lent service just uh, a week and a half ago. Uh, So we're going to skip over the parable of the tenants and then continue on with verse 13 in chapter 12. So we'll be reading the three sections of questioning uh, by the Jewish leaders. So let's start with Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Follow along as I read. And they came again to Jerusalem... And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why didn't you believe in him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus then tells the parable of the tenants, condemning the Jewish leaders. And then we skip ahead to chapter 12, verse 13 continuing the Jewish leaders' questioning. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearance, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? 
But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to him, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. They marveled at him. When the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Well, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring, and the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. So in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So you are quite wrong. It's a great passage of Scripture. Let me pray briefly. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the precious gift of your words that you have sent to your people. We pray that you would speak to us tonight by your Spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. You have to imagine, picture a series of days, at least the, the text indicates that Jesus has entered Jerusalem several times. Now he entered Jerusalem first and is acclaimed as the coming king. Palm branches are laid out before him, and the people shout, Hosanna, Hosanna to the highest. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And then Jesus enters the temple again and clears the temple of, of merchants and money changers, and those who sold animals. And he leaves, and now he comes into Jerusalem again. And you have to imagine the tension, the tension that there is in Jerusalem, because last time Jesus was here, he had made a whip of cords and driven people out of the temple, and here he is back in the temple. What's going to happen now? And I think if you picture morning dawning with Jesus coming back into Jerusalem, and here's this group of Jewish elders waiting outside the temple court to meet Jesus. These are chief priests, scribes, elders, leading men in Jerusalem, quite possibly members of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of 70 men consisting of leading priests, elders of the people, and scribes, and they formed sort of the high court or high council of the Jewish people. They didn't have supreme legal authority under, because that belonged to Rome, but they were the council and, 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 and chief group in charge or court, if you will, for, for the Jews. And so it seems likely that maybe many of these men were part of the Sanhedrin. And, and here they are. Jesus is coming back. Yesterday, he drove the people out of the temple, the money changers out of the temple, charged them of turning the temple into a den of thieves. And so here are the Jewish leaders ready to say, Jesus, what in the world are you doing? And what ensues is a series of questions, a series of questions that are carefully crafted to try to trap Jesus 
into saying something that would get him in trouble or at very least undermine his ministry and the momentum that he has with the people. As I read this text and as you read different groups of Jewish leaders questioning Jesus, carefully crafting these questions and trying to trap them, I couldn't help but think as I was preparing this past week of the confirmation hearings in the Senate for President Trump's recent Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch. And some of you are probably aware that Mr. Gorsuch, uh, in a very deeply political climate, a deeply divided political climate, went through 20 hours of questioning by the Senate Judiciary Committee. Now, this is not 20 hours of like, hey, we would really like to learn what you think about these things. This is 20 hours of political opponents asking carefully plotted questions to try to trap you and expose things about you. And I can, I can only imagine the sort of environment where every word you say is going to be recorded and replayed and gone over in transcript, and, and they're going to be looking for any little phrase that could be twisted in any way to get you in trouble. I, uh, I know that, that Dr. Rogers still talks about the four-plus hours of questioning he received from the pulpit committee when they came down to, uh, to hire him 20-plus years ago. But I have to imagine even that paled in comparison to 20 hours of Senate Judiciary Committee questioning. And I think this is the, the picture that I have in mind when you see these leaders, these leaders of the Jews waiting for him and saying, Jesus, we have some questions for you. And knowing what their intentions are as they lay out these questions. And so some of the key leaders of the Sanhedrin likely approach Jesus first at the end of chapter 11, and they ask what appears to be the most straightforward question. Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? He can sort of imagine the veiled, who do you think you are? That you can come in and make a whip and drive out the official changers and animal dealers of the temple. But the question is not actually as straightforward as it might appear, because the, the Jewish leaders are not asking an honest question out of curiosity. They're not there to say, you know, Jesus, we're, we're really wondering something. We've always wondered, would you just tell us, you know, what authority do you have here? We really want to know. They're not there out of curiosity to, to figure something out. They're there to try to trap Jesus. They're there with a specific intent. And so, what are Jesus' options? If Jesus says, I am here with the authority of God, the Jewish leaders are looking for more ammunition to charge Jesus of blasphemy. We know from the Gospel of John that they had sought to stone him previously for claiming to be identified with God and the power and authority of God. And so if he says, I am here with the very power and authority of God doing these things, then the Jewish leaders have an answer they're looking for, something that they can work with. But if he says, well, you know, i just doing these things on my own authority or something on those lines, they again have ammunition that they can press back against him. If you're just here on your own authority or the authority of men, you don't have that authority, and they can press back. You've overstepped your bounds. And so even this question is a question where Jesus' answer is going to be significant, and the Jewish leaders are looking for a way that they can use his answer. This is a challenge to him. But what the Jewish leaders fail to realize is that they shouldn't have to ask this question. They should know the answer to this. 
We're at the end of nearly three years of Jesus' ministry. Here's Jesus who has very publicly healed blind men by touching their eyes, who's healed lame men by just saying, get up and walk. Here's Jesus who has taught with wisdom and authority that astounded everyone. Here's Jesus who took a dead daughter of a leader of the synagogue and raised this daughter from from the dead, back to life. Here's Jesus who took a few loaves of bread and a few fishes and fed 5,000 men along with women and children. And you don't know by what power and authority Jesus' ministry is operating? Could anything, could anyone but the power and authority of God raise people from the dead, multiply bread, heal lame men with a word? No one but God could do these things. There's no mystery surrounding Jesus and who he is. And as I said, John's gospel has already indicated that Jesus has has told the leaders, he's hinted to the leaders, that he is here with the power and authority of God. If the Jewish leaders don't recognize the power and authority of God at work, the issue isn't any lack of clarity on Jesus' part. The issue is their own hardness of heart and refusal to believe in the Son of God. And so Jesus responds by turning the question back on him. I want you to look carefully at the way Jesus responds. He doesn't respond with just a simple, well, you should know by now. He responds by saying, well, I'll answer you as soon as you tell me what the authority was behind John the Baptist's ministry. What was behind John the Baptist's ministry? Was it God or was it men? Now, I want you to understand what Jesus is doing because sometimes when I read this text, I sort of read a snarky tone in Jesus' voice. Like, well, Jewish leaders, I'll tell you, but first you better answer me. What do you think was up with John the Baptist? Was that God or was that man? And, and I, sort of, I sort of hear Jesus, you know, short on patience, responding in sort of a, a, a manner that's going to, knowing he's going to trap them, uh, perhaps putting them in their place. But Jesus is not engaged here in some sort of battle of the wits to see who can ask the cleverer question. It's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus isn't asking them a question that ought to reveal to them the answer to their own question. Jesus' question is aimed at revealing the truth because the same power and authority that were behind John the Baptist's ministry is the power and authority behind Jesus' ministry. They are both men sent by God to do God's work. Therefore, they're there with the power and authority of God. So Jesus is actually giving the Jewish leaders a chance to answer their own question. He's giving them a chance to break through the hardness of their heart and see the truth. Like how one commentator put it, he said, Jesus' question was yet another opportunity for the Jewish leaders to realize and confess their blindness and to ask for sight. But the Jewish leaders are too busy trying to decide what answer is safe in light of the people's opinions to even consider what might actually be true. And so as a result, these these chief priests, these scribes, these elders say they don't know whether John's ministry was from heaven or from men. They admit defeat and are silenced, while Jesus then goes on to tell the crowd the parable of the tenants and convicts the Jewish leaders of their opposition to God's servants and God's Son. And I want to just pause for just a minute to to see what a hardness of heart and a blindness of heart does to the mind and the heart of someone who is not willing 
to see the truth of God. For these, for these Jewish leaders, they have had no lack of opportunities to know who Jesus was. Jesus has affirmed to them over and over by what he has done and what he has preached and proclaimed, who he is, the role he plays. And yet the Jewish leaders do not recognize him. And there are many, there are many in our, in our world today, many that you and I will interact with, who have had so many opportunities to hear the gospel. Maybe you can think of, of family, family members who have heard the gospel year after year, maybe whom you have had the chance to share the gospel with, people in your schools, perhaps, who have heard the gospel over and over, and we think, you know who Christ is. The, the truth of God and the salvation that comes in Christ is so clear, and yet, and yet they don't recognize it. They're unwilling to believe in the hope that they have in Christ. This is what blindness and hardness of heart does. Not because Jesus is unclear with who he is, not because the gospel is questionable, but because our hearts refuse to place the trust in a Savior Jesus who has revealed who he is, shown us who he is, given us opportunity to believe. I want to encourage us in the face of that frustration and that and that despair of, of longing to see these people come to know Christ. The only hope is, is prayer and the work of God to change the hard heart. It's only when God changes a hard heart will truth be evident. Well, the chief priests and scribes and elders went away from this conversation silenced and defeated, but they walked away with something valuable. They walked away with an idea and a plan. See, Jesus... Jesus had trapped them, or so they thought. Jesus had silenced them by asking them a question, and either way they answered, they would have gotten themselves in trouble. And so they say, aha, we were silenced by Jesus. Let's come up with a question that gets him in trouble, no matter what he says. Let's see if we can come up with a question to ask Jesus that will put him in the same dilemma he put us in. And so... And so they, they plan this trap. And if you look ahead to chapter 12 and verse 13, you can, you can see the Jewish leaders sort of sending in their elite undercover operatives to see if they can trap Jesus in his words. And the question they ask is a very good one. The question they ask is a question that no leader would have wanted to answer publicly because either answer would have gotten you in trouble with somebody. And that was exactly the intent of the Jewish leaders. We read in verse 13 that some of the Pharisees and Herodians were sent to trap Jesus. The Pharisees and Herodians are odd allies. They normally disagreed about just about everything, but they agree about one thing, and that is that they hate Jesus and want to see him humiliated. And, and notice, notice how they come to Jesus. They come to Jesus with this, this feigned humility. Oh, Jesus, we know you're the one who tells the truth. We know you're the one who doesn't regard other people's opinions, and we can, we, can get, we can get the truth from you because you teach the way of God. It's almost, it's almost like they're trying to butter him up or, or lull him and throw him off to the fact that they're going to ask him a tricky question. And as I, was, as I was imagining the scene in my mind, I was imagining perhaps some, some Democratic leaders sort of sidling up to Neil Gorsuch and saying, you know, we actually agree with you. We think you're great. We just have a question for you. And trying to sort of trick him into, into saying something he would regret later. And that's, that's what these 
leaders are doing here. Jesus, we, we think you're, you're the one who really teaches truth. So can we get your opinion on something? Should we, should we pay taxes to Caesar or should we not? Is it a good thing for Israelites to pay taxes to Caesar or no? What should we do, Jesus? And this is a question that would strike at the heart of every Jewish person. And there had to have been a, a hush, a sudden hush in anticipation on the crowd because everyone would have had a, an opinion on this question and everyone would have known the consequences of either answer that Jesus gives. If Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, 90% of the people who follow Jesus would be turned back. 90% of the people who follow Jesus are going to be angered because they're the ones under the hand of Rome. They're the ones suffering under the tax burden of Rome. Rome is, is the evil enemy oppressing God's people. There is no way for these people a Jewish Messiah would say you should pay Roman taxes. But say no. Say no, you should not pay taxes. And it's an easy victory because they can hand him over as an insurrectionist to Rome. And Rome will do away with Jesus faster than they could even desire. Be vague and refuse to answer, and both sides are suspicious. Both sides need to keep an eye on him and suddenly are worried about this Jesus. So that's the environment. Tense with anticipation. A hush on the crowd. What is Jesus going to say to this question? When Jesus issues what some people have considered to be the most astounding answer in his entire ministry. The denarius, the denarius was a common coin that bore the image and the inscription of Caesar. It would have had a picture, a picture of Caesar stamped on it along with the inscription of to Tiberius Julius Caesar. It identifies him and, its, and, uh, and his inscription, and, and it says, I think what we want to see is that this Roman coin doesn't just have a picture of Caesar on it. A Roman coin would have been part of the whole Roman system. If Israel is not under Rome, they're not using the Roman denarius. And so even for, for the Israelite, even the fact that they're trading in the denarius and the, the fact that the denarius was their economic system is, is a reminder to them, we're part of the Roman system. We're under the Roman government. This is who we are. And so when Jesus calls for a denarius and he identifies Caesar's image and inscription and he says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Jesus isn't just saying, hey, look, here's a picture of Caesar. Fine, let's give it back to Caesar. It's his picture on it anyways. He's saying, look, the denarius is already part of the Roman system, and you don't want to be part of that system in the first place. So just give it back to him. What a brilliant answer. Because it satisfies Rome, who just wants to get their money, but it satisfies the anti-Jewish sentiment as well. This is Caesar's. This belongs to the Roman system. And you're upset about having to give it back to Rome? Give it back to them. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. These are Caesar's things. These aren't your things. And so Jesus' answer is the perfect answer. Saying to give money back to the system you don't want to be part of anyways. But then Jesus goes on. He's already, I think, given the perfect answer. But he goes on to say, and render to God the things that are God's. 
And by comparing a denarius to the things that are God, Jesus shifts the whole emphasis. He shifts the whole emphasis and says, ultimately, this isn't a question of political alliances. This isn't a question of should you be under Rome or not be under Rome. He shifts the emphasis to highlight how insignificant things of this earth are compared to the importance of spiritual things. He shifts the emphasis and says the real things are, yeah, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but, but give to God the things that are God's. And Jesus has now done a comparison of importance. The things of this world pale in comparison to the things of God and to spiritual alliances. And what belongs to God? We could rightly say everything belongs to God, but I think Jesus is specifically saying you are God's people. God has created you. Your hearts belong to Him. So give this money to Caesar, but give your hearts, give yourselves to your God because you are His. You can hear Jesus saying, don't worry about Rome's kingdom and Rome's world or Rome's rule. Worry about God's kingdom and God's rule. See, the second part of Jesus' answer is challenging the hearts of both parties. Regardless of whether you are for Rome or against Rome, Jesus' answer challenges your heart because it challenges both parties as as to what they love. It's asking the question, do you love the right things? Are you rendering to God the things that are God's? And so here in Jesus' answer, Jesus is saying, go ahead, submit to earthly governments, submit to taxes and the political systems God has put you under. There's nothing anti-God about submitting to the earthly government that He has put over you. But these things are of small importance. They're of small significance compared to the call of God, the call to obey His law, to find joy and hope in His kingdom. And so you hear Jesus saying, don't get all passionate and worked up into rebellion over things like Roman taxes. Get worked up. Have your passion, your excitement, your joy, your love related to God and His kingdom and the things that are your heavenly fathers. Jesus' answer strikes me every time I read it because it reminds me. It reminds me to ask this question, how much do I care about the things of this world? And if I look at the evidence of my life, the answer is that I care a lot about things of this world. If you ask yourselves the question, what do I worry about? What do I worry about? What do I want? What do I desire? What makes me happy or gets me excited? What depresses me or gets me angry? What do I spend my time thinking about? What am I obsessed by? And the answers to these questions show me what's important to me. And these, these questions reveal our hearts and what's important to us. And so often the answers to these questions of what do I worry about? What am I desiring? What do I spend my time thinking about? What gets me excited or happy? What gets me upset or frustrated? And so often the answers to these things are, are money or the things money buys or the things my sports team did or didn't do and the things of this world drive me so fully. And so Jesus' question brings me back to put the things of this world in their proper place. Call your heart. Jesus is calling our heart to focus on God's kingdom and God's people. I love the way one pastor put it. He was talking about this passage and he said, to us who bear the image of God by virtue of our humanity and then also have the character of God further pressed upon our souls by the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus stands before us and says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things 
that are God? Have we given to God what is His? And that is our very selves, our very hearts, and our very souls. There's certainly hundreds of individual applications that could apply to each one of our lives that stem from this question. I have been united to Christ by faith, so I belong to Him. Do my life and my heart and my loves reflect this? I've been united by, to Christ by faith, so I am His. Do my life and my heart and my loves reflect this? I think each of us can apply this to our lives in different ways. Well, this verse 17 ends with the Pharisees and Herodians marveling at Jesus, amazed at the wisdom of His answer that could avoid angering either side, but could also call their hearts to the truth of God's kingdom. Their surefire trap had only served to further reveal Jesus' wisdom. They thought they were going to get Jesus in trouble, and instead Jesus is raised even higher in the estimation of the people. So they pass the mic off to the Sadducees, and you could imagine, you know, party number one failed. All right, party number two, we're moving in with a different tact. They haven't given up yet, and they're going to take their shot at Jesus. One cross-examination has failed. Maybe a different approach entirely can catch Jesus off guard. See, the Sadducees are sort of the educated elite, and they know Jesus has wisdom, but they also know that Jesus has never been officially trained in the Jewish law. Jesus had no official training. And so you see the Sadducees taking a different tact and asking a complicated question about the Mosaic law. And you can hear them thinking, okay, if we can catch Jesus in a question he doesn't know about the Mosaic law, maybe that will stall his authority and, and his momentum with the people. And so here are the Sadducees. The Sadducees were bitter opponents of the Pharisees, but again, different, different uh, parties united in their opposition to Jesus. And the Sadducees were particularly known for, for two things. Uh, one, uh, the Sadducees were known for only accepting the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Only those five books were authoritative and from God, according to the Sadducees. And second, the Sadducees believed that there was no life after death. No life after death, no resurrection. Uh, as part of that, they, they believed that the whole sort of system of angels and demons and the spiritual warfare is also uh, not true because that would imply some eternal existence beyond this world. Uh, the Sadducees also uh, were not much into sort of rewards and punishments because there's no life after death. Uh, so they were very utilitarian in sort of figuring out what's the best way to live our life now. No resurrection, only the first five books uh, of the Bible. And so this question stems straight from their sort of test question about the resurrection. You can see the text tells us they didn't believe in the resurrection, and their question has to do with that. And they present him with this odd scenario. It's based on a Mosaic law which said if, if a man gets married and dies and leaves no children, he is putting at risk his family's name and also the inheritance that God had given his family in the land. And so in order to protect the family's name and the family's inheritance, that man's brother was supposed to marry his wife and raise up children that would continue his name and continue to maintain the inheritance in the land that he'd been given. So the Sadducees present this rather far-fetched scenario of seven brothers, each of whom die swiftly, 
each of whom marry the same woman, and in the end, the woman dies, and they say, so Jesus, you know, we're going to get to this whole resurrection thing, and we've got what, like a love octagon or something like that, of seven brothers and the woman that they're all sort of vying over in the resurrection, she's my wife, no, she's my wife, well, I, you know, so what do we do, Jesus? Whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Because they all married her. And most people, most people, again, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were opponents of each other. And most people believe that this was probably a stock scenario that Sadducees had used in their debates or their arguments with the Pharisees, and a scenario that had stumped the Pharisees over and over again. So the Sadducees say, I know, let's pull out that one that the Pharisees can never answer because Jesus probably won't be able to answer it anyways, especially since he's never been trained in the law. And so here they are with their stock theological question, ready to catch Jesus, either unable to say anything or giving a foolish answer. But Jesus not only has an answer, his answer goes further to decisively rebut the Sadducees' whole system of beliefs saying that they are quite wrong because they know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. So much for an uneducated Galilean being trapped by the Sadducees. Look look at the answer here. Jesus begins by rejecting the common Jewish understanding of life after death. See, the, the common Jewish understanding of life after death was that life would continue roughly the same as it does here, just forever in God's presence. And so for the the Jew, yeah, if you're married here, you're going to be married there. If you've got a family here, your family goes on living together there. And and so you see that the question is based off that presupposition about what eternal life is going to look like. It basically looks like a continuation of life here with all of the same relationships uh, and details in place. But Jesus says that this is far too earthly a view of things. This assumes that heaven is no better than life on earth, just continuing it misses the fact that resurrection is a work of the power of God. Our earthly lives, thankfully, are not just transferred to heaven, they are transformed in heaven. Heaven is not just a transferral of what happens here, it is a transformation whereby our bodies and souls are perfected and glorified and raised, not as earthly beings, but as heavenly beings. And Jesus says, so those who are transformed by the power of God and resurrection become like the angels in heaven. And this is the heart of our hope. I don't want to miss this. I don't want you to miss in sort of the details of Jesus' answer the fact that this is the heart of our hope, that the power of God is at work in his people so that we are going to be raised. We're going to be raised as imperishable, unsinning, glorified people whose individuality and identity remain intact. Yes, but whose existence is unfathomably transformed in glorious hope. Everything that we would long for scripturally is brought about in this glorification such that we're transformed to be like the angels of God. So I don't want to miss how glorious this hope is that's described by Jesus in this passage. We, we often miss that. We often miss it because we're, we're trying to figure out the details of the statement. There's no longer marriage. You no longer marry or are given in marriage. And this is a puzzling and disappointing statement often. I think Jesus, Jesus brings up these details about, well, you won't have a husband or a wife. And it raises questions in our mind. How can we continue to have our identity and not be married to the person we were married to on earth? 
That's the heart of who we are. And I know, I know for myself, I, I have a hard time imagining what it would be like to be myself in heaven and yet not be married to my wife. How, how does that? And so I'm so, I'm, so, uh, I'm so wrapped up in trying to figure out the details of that question sometimes that I miss the glory of, of the hope here. But what do we do with this? What do we do with Jesus' statement that they are neither married nor are given in marriage? I remember sitting around a dinner table as a seminary student. It was my wife and I and two other couples. We were at the profess, uh, a professor's house. Dr. Richard Gaffin was a well-known professor at Westminster Seminary. We were eating lunch at his house after, after church one Sunday. And, and one of the couples, one of the, the husbands said, So, Dr. Gaffin, I really want to ask you about this whole no marriage in heaven thing. He said, Dr. Gaffin, God created marriage in the beginning before the fall. It was very good. It was part of the sinless creation. It's, it's, it's part of God's whole plan. How can it be, Dr. Gaffin, that this beautiful thing that God has created before the fall is not going to be around in heaven? And I still, still remember Dr. Gaffin, an older gentleman, slowly sort of thinking and then responding. He said, I don't have any explanation for why it is so, but God makes it clear that marriage is his wonderful provision for our journey. I love that, that statement. It's a wonderful provision for our journey, not part of our eternal identity. And I think about that often. God, marriage is God's wonderful provision for our earthly journey. J.C. Ryle actually makes a similar point. He says, he says, when we are enjoying the full presence of God and His Christ without weariness, without fatigue, without death, without pain, without hardship, without loss— Men and women no longer have the need for comfort, encouragement, and companionship in one another that they now have perfectly in Christ. And I think also of Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, God tells us that marriage is a picture of our relationship with Christ. One of the key roles for marriage is to give us a picture of our marriage to Christ or our relationship to Christ. But if marriage is a picture or a sign pointing to our relationship with Christ, once we actually have our relationship with Christ, we don't need the sign anymore. And I imagine some of you have probably followed either your phone or a GPS, followed directions to someone's house. And you could imagine the ridiculousness of following your GPS or your, your directions on your phone, following it, driving to someone's house, and you get there, and you just sit in the driveway continuing to stare at your GPS or your phone. You're there. You don't need to look at that anymore. It's already performed its function. Or you could imagine, you could imagine the, this foolishness of, of, a, of a, a man staring at a picture of his spouse when his spouse is standing right next to him. You don't need the picture when she's there. You don't need the directions when you arrive. And marriage has fulfilled one of its key functions by pointing us to Christ when the reality will be there. These are perhaps a few comments. Maybe I, I'm not going to... Uh, propose to completely solve everything or, or know exactly all the details of our heavenly existence, but I think that, that those comments maybe help us understand what Jesus is saying. But again, I don't want our questions about Jesus' comments, particularly in light of marriage, to steal our attention from the main point of Jesus' comment. The main point of Jesus' comment is this. Our hope is glorious. Resurrection life is like that of the angels of God. And that's the hope we have in Christ. 
Well, Jesus has already dismantled the Sadducees' question, but he presses on further to rebut their position on resurrection in the first place. He says, I've answered your question, but now I want to comment about that whole resurrection thing. You don't believe in the resurrection, Sadducees. But he goes on to comment it. And notice what he does. He goes back to the burning bush passage. Which book of the Bible is the burning bush passage found in? It's found in Exodus. One of the five books that the Sadducees actually believed was legitimate. So Jesus goes onto their ground and he says in the burning bush passage, which you believe, Sadducees, God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And maybe that seems like a bit of a tangential passage or a little bit of a stretch, but you hear what God is saying. God is speaking decades, centuries, 600 years after Abraham. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God cannot now, in the time of Moses, be the God of someone who doesn't exist. If there is no eternal life, if there is no resurrection... Abraham's gone. He doesn't exist. He's dust that's been taken through the life cycle in the ground multiple times by now. God can't now be his God if he's gone. So when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's implying there must be an Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob now for me to be God of. Again, I love, uh, I love what one uh, commentator said. One commentator said this. He said, God cannot now be the God who is someone who is no more than a pile of disintegrating dust. Nor does God covenant eternally with creatures that go out like a candle and cease to exist. God has not only declared to be Abraham's God, he has also made an everlasting covenant with Abraham. He doesn't say, I'm making an everlasting covenant with your descendants. He says, with you and your descendants. If God has made an everlasting covenant with God, why would he make an everlasting covenant with Abraham? Why would he make an everlasting covenant with someone who is going to cease to exist? As another person said, God does not make everlasting covenants with insects that live an hour and then die, and nor would he make an everlasting covenant with someone who lives 120 years and then dies and ceases to exist. And so, if the Sadducees believe this portion of God's word as they claim, there is only one explanation. God's identification of himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, forging an everlasting covenant with them, means they are still alive and resurrection is real. And so as Jesus concludes so powerfully, God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. You are quite wrong. I love those final statements. This is an answer that must have thrilled and astounded the crowd but it also ought to thrill our hearts to hear this. He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. What greater hope could we have? For everyone God has declared to be His, there is eternal hope. For God has an eternal relationship with His people. We who are His of all people should be characterized by hope and joy and zeal if this is the confident expectation we have to look back on. Well, here we have the Jews. Three times the Jews tried to trap Jesus in his word. And three times Jesus answered with wisdom and rebuked their questions and called their heart to see the power and the hope and the promise of the kingdom of God. Jesus did all things by the power and authority of God himself. God's people ought to care about and give themselves to God and to his kingdom. 
and God's people have great and eternal hope in the power and promises of God. Because God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And these answers should call our hearts to hope and our hearts to joy and our hearts to zeal for his kingdom, just like they called the Jews. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. We thank you for this glorious vision of hope in heaven, of a resurrection. We thank you that God is the God of the living and not the dead. We pray that our hearts would seek you above all else. In Christ's name, amen.